Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's great to have you on board. Don't forget... If you would like to learn more about Euros Hartleys and the financial services we provide, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. In this episode 12, we are exceptionally lucky to have join us Mr. David Southam, the Managing Director of ASX-listed Nickel Sulphide Development Company, Mincor Resources. David, who grew up in New Zealand, talks us through his life insights and career having accumulated some amazing experiences in leadership across the resources and industrial sectors over more than 30 years. David speaks openly, and we are grateful he has been able to take some time out to share his thoughts with us. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce all-round good guy, Mr. David Southern. David, thanks very much for joining us on Finding the Front. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's just fantastic. It's great to have you on the show because we get an opportunity to talk about your life insights and really what is an amazing career, which currently sits at you being the managing director of Mincor Resources. As we know, it's an ASX listed nickel sulfide development company within the well-known nickel belt region of Cambalder in the goldfields of Western Australia. Now, David, that's quite a story in itself because when you started, the company had a market capitalization of some $70 million. It's now got a market cap of over a billion dollars, but we'll get to that later on. One of the important parts of finding the front is getting to know a bit about you and your background. And and one of the things that jumped out at me was that you came from New Zealand. Fantastic. (laughs) That gives us a great start. Absolutely. Well, like all good Australians, I'm sure you're going to claim ownership of a New Zealander when they do okay. <laughs> Why not? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about that. What part of New Zealand did you grow up in? Yeah, so I was born in a very small country town called Paihetua, which is, uh, for anyone who knows anything about New Zealand, the capital was Wellington, and that is about an hour and a half north of Wellington, very much a farming country. Right. That's where I was born to a you know, a really interesting family on my mum's side who was, their family were very entrepreneurial. And in fact, I recently discovered a, a YouTube video about my grandfather's uh, business recently, and it should have been one of those businesses like in succession. It was an amazing business that he built up from scratch. And if I just diverge a little bit, he started a business called Kiwi Cordials in a very small Really? In a very small town. And he was just an entrepreneur and he built that up and he ended up having the Pepsi rights to New Zealand out of the small town. But unfortunately, my grandfather died in a car crash when I was very, very young. And my mother and her sisters um, didn't receive the business. The trustees decided to sell the business and sold it way too early. It would be a a multi-billion dollar business and there was actually someone who researched it in New Zealand and made a YouTube video about it. My goodness, that is an amazing story. Yeah, it was. He was very strict man. 
and very traditional with his views back then, but just had that entrepreneurial flair. And he, he was sort of the main business in town. So the main business in town, Kiwi Cordials, with the opportunity to ta- – well, he did have the Pepsi rights for, yes. New- for the whole of New Zealand. Yes. Gosh, David. Wow. Yes. Anyway. And anyway, we move on. <laughs> we do. I may, I may have not quite gotten over that yet. But, uh, <laughs> but it was um, – yeah, that's where my mum and dad met. My dad joined the Public Trust of New Zealand, was a trustee for wills and estates, so you certainly get to see the good and bad of people in that vocation. He was actually born in Blenheim, which, uh, again, for people who don't know New Zealand, that's towards the top of the South Island. Uh, and if anyone drinks wine, they'll know that that's the area where Sauvignon Blanc really came from. So if you drink Cloudy Bay, it's from that region. But he, he, had a, he had a very different upbringing, a really tough upbringing compared to my mum. Uh, he came from a broken home where his father took off at a very young age. He had to go out and work along with his brothers and sisters to be able to afford to live and at the same time ended up being a Commonwealth Games swimmer in Butterfly. And so he was doing all of that plus his studies and trying to support home. Um, was there a pool in Blenheim? Yeah, there was a pool. Yeah, there was, it, it was shared with the cows and the sheep. <laughs> um, but there, no, there was a pool and, and he trained. Like a 50-metre pool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he tra- he tra- swimming was a big sport in New yeah. Zealand. And he trained really hard, um, but back then it was called the Empire Games and you had to fund your own way to get to the Empire Games and unfortunately family didn't have the money and the number two went in the butterfly and won the gold medal. So That was, was a great story. Yeah, it was a real shame. Yeah. So I actually grew up swimming a lot, but uh, yeah, doing laps wasn't my thing. No, but that's an outstanding achievement for him. He must have been dedicated to being a good butterfly. I mean, that's not an easy stroke to yeah. pick up. Yeah, you have to have very strong shoulders, very strong back, neck, because you are, you're launching yourself out of the pool, hence why I went to freestyle. Right. <laughs> and and tell us a little bit about your, your mum. Yeah, mum. So she grew up in family with, a, I think, three sisters and a brother. But, you know, very nice upbringing. But mum got married to dad when she was 18. Right. Had me at 19, which is a scary thought today when I think of my own children having children and me being called a granddad still at 49. Fortunately, they're not having children that I'm aware of. And so, uh, yeah, she got married young and quite different to her sisters who all married farmers, uh, married a townie, as dad was called, yes. um, in public trust. But as long as I've known mum, she's always worked as well. Part of contributing to the family, brought us up, has been a passionate, passionate supporter of us, but you know, I remember her. She'd work during the week. She worked at the TAB on the Saturdays. Racing was was big in New Zealand, just to bring in that little bit of extra money. Well, one of the uh, one of the enduring memories I, I have. Mum's still alive, unfortunately. Dad passed away too early, a couple of years ago at seventy five, and unfortunately, I didn't quite get over. I was halfway across the ditch, rushing back, but didn't get back in time, unfortunately. Oh. But um, going back to mum, one of my enduring memories was growing up playing rugby. And in New Zealand, rugby's in your DNA. Started at the age of four, bare feet, tackle, you know, not worrying about little Johnny getting a, stra- a scratch. You would suffer what I call the Maori sidestep where someone would just run straight through <laughs> you. And, you know, we'd play in Jack Frost. It was cold, wet, muddy, 
tackling, but it was fantastic. And unfortunately, I had a bit, a little bit of white line fever running onto the rugby field. My enduring memories of mum from the sideline was her yelling at me, telling me to calm down because I'd hiss and I'd, and I'd, I'd get angry and, <laughs> and look at the truth. At the end of the day, it was all bravado. Bravado. I probably couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag, um, but it was all about intent yes. uh, on the rugby field. So I yeah, have fond memories of her yelling at me. So your family. Your mum, your dad. Did you have any other brothers and sisters? Yeah, one younger brother. One yeah. younger brother. And is he still in New Zealand or he? Yeah, he's in New Zealand. You know, we're a golfing family. Right. Um, yeah, so I've never had a lesson in my life other than from my dad. And I'm actually the black sheep on a four handicap. Wow. Yeah, I don't practice, don't have the time to practice, but I'm the black sheep. My dad was a scratch golfer and I think my brother's now on plus one or plus two. Fantastic. Yeah. Don't know don't know why that is in the genes, but me yeah, and my dad taught me. And you know, one of the things that I treasure is uh, is every Sunday, especially when I wasn't playing rugby, dad and I would play golf at a country course um, just outside of Hamilton, which is where I really grew up. Is sort of nicknamed the Tron, the inland city of New Zealand. Um, city is defined as a hundred thousand people. Right. But dad and I would play out at this course called Parongia, which was also a racetrack. It was very much a working class golf course, but I always played with older people. Yes. And, and when I look back on that now, it really taught me to communicate with people from a different generation. And until recently, I've sort of really found myself surrounded by working with people older than me and it's, it's held me in good stead. Yes. And it's not until later on in life where you you know, reflect on these things that you know, you do learn some lessons from everyday life and you have those light bulb moments. So yeah, you know, I was betting 10 cents on nine holes because that's about all I could afford back then. <laughs> um, so there was always a lot of banter and a lot of pressure, but yeah, they always looked after me out of that, out of that golf club. And so whenever I go back to New Zealand, I, I try and go there and play nine holes. Sounds like a fantastic upbringing in terms of just hanging out with your dad and the golf yeah. club community. Yeah, he, he sort of taught me a little bit of a business lesson as well around deal making early because uh, you know, I always wanted to drive the car home from the golf club and dad in his uh, very clever way meant mm, well, that means I can probably have a few beers after golf. But part of the deal was I had to wash the car if I was allowed to drive at home the 20 minutes. So for a 20 minute drive home, which was, let's say, maybe not legal at those times. Right. Yeah, you know, I had to wash the car. So there was always a bit of deal making, <laughs> um, deal making involved. And it, it did help me, though, in New Zealand, uh, where I grew up, you could get your driver's license at the age of 15, which is a scary thought. Well, if you put that into context over here, there'd be, I don't know, how that would play out. <laughs> Uh, not not <laughs> very did, well. No, how does it play out in New Zealand? Not, yeah, not very well. But I spent a lot of time in school holidays uh, on the farm. Right. And in case we're not going to go with the farm jokes, we'll stick away from those <laughs> because I've heard them all before. <laughs> yeah, so I spent a lot of time on the farm. So you're riding motorcycles, quads, you know, you're in the, you're in the ute, you're, you're dealing with the dogs. Yeah, it was a very simple upbringing, but a fantastic upbringing. We spent a number of our holidays at a place called Waihe Beach. And Waihe's actually got a famous gold mine that's still operating today. I think it's owned by Oceana. But Waihe Beach was just one of those fantastic beaches. And again, Dad was a surfer. And so I learned to surf at a very, very young age. Again, we didn't have wetsuits and we're in New Zealand. That's just the way it went. Way it went. And uh, he had a, a 10-foot surfboard, which you could hold a party on. It was almost impossible to fall off. But, you know... 
back in those days, we had a batch or in the Kiwi accent, a bitch. Yes. You'd walk across the car park and straight into the beach and it was a very gradual decline into the into the water. And so I would go out there from the age of five or six and I'd be out there by myself for the whole day just surfing. So you're pretty handy on a surfboard? Oh, I could I could I could make my way, that's for sure. And yeah, and we did a lot of surfing, maybe took a little bit of um extra time off high school to go to a, a surf break at Raglan, which is on the west coast of New Zealand and has some famous left handers there and but if you fell off, you hit some boulders, but they were pretty amazing waves. Wow. So sounds like a fantastic time. Yeah. What prompted you to then head over towards the west coast of Australia? How did that all unfold? Dad had really had a job at the public trustee for a long period of time. And then for a period of time, they toyed and they ended up buying a pub in the Coromandel Peninsula in a place called Corriglen, where basically the pub was it. You know, there were wild boar heads up on the pub and, and I used to pour the odd handle of beer uh, when I was about 10. So where, where was, are we talking here? The Cor- Coromandel Peninsula is yeah. on the east coast of the North Island. Right. It's actually some, some of the best beaches in New Zealand that you'll find. So we did that and as a funny side story, I managed to get my hand run over by a lawnmower, which, my, was, my which, goodness. Was, which, was, not much, which was not much fun. <laughs> I, again, I had, like every New Zealander, I had delusions of that at one day I'd play for the All Blacks. Um, I wanted to get into the Waikato Chiefs, which is a super rugby team, and I was practicing uh, kicking, kicking the ball over the post uh, on the weekend and a young, probably 16-year-old had a big mass sport mower and he was mowing mowing the rugby grounds and he was probably getting a bit annoyed at me this little kid trying to kick the ball over the posts and he came a bit close to me and the ball was up on the sand mound and the ball fell over and I reached out to get it I slipped my hand went out and this big school lawnmower went straight over top of my hand oh David yes and I'm left-handed and this is a country town and let's just say what you see in horror movies where blood is appearing everywhere started to appear I didn't feel it um, but my finger was was dangling and I'm a left-hander and it was on my left hand. And so he ran to the principal who lived nearby. They wrapped it up in towels. They then drove, picked up dad from the pub and drove about 45 minutes to the local doctor. Local doctor had a look at it and went, hmm. So he whacked in 22 injections to numb the area and then stitched it up and off you went. No microsurgery, no (laughs) follow-up. And uh, so I ended up I couldn't use the hand for nearly a year, so I can write both left-handed and right-handed, but I play golf right-handed and kick left-footed and play tennis left-handed, so I'm all over the place. Ambidextrous. Yes. I like to think it's a sign of intelligence. Uh, Probably not with me, though. So that prompted them to sell the pub. They went back to Hamilton and then decided a sea change. They went for a holiday to Perth, knew some friends and thought, you know, and it was a bit of a risk, and especially with me being in effectively in a year 11 to move across to a different country for a, for a sea change. And so, yeah, we, we moved across. We spent our first two days at Burswood. That was our treat at, right. the, at the casino. It was fairly new back then and ended up moving into an area called Kingsley where effectively the freeway north ended and went to high school at Woodvale Senior High. So how did you find school as a general thing? Did you enjoy schooling? Uh, yeah, I did. It was... I mean, apart from the fact that you've now landed in a brand new school mm. at the age of yeah. 15 and you've come through the ranks in New Zealand and now you're landed with that New Zealand accent, as you've quite rightly pointed out earlier, into Woodvale Secondary School and a whole new world in essence. Yeah, look, it was 
when I look back on it, it was it was a challenge because you don't have a forensic group that you've built up over many years. But it was also an opportunity for a fresh start. The the high school I went to uh, in in New Zealand was very low socioeconomic public school with a lot of problems. Um, a lot of people ended up in in various gangs, and it really looking back on it taught me about surrounding yourself with the right people. And so there was also an opportunity here to sort of start afresh yes. as well. And yeah, with a thick accent, my mum met the uniform lady who advised her, yes, everyone wears a school uniform to school. And so I rock up on day one with, you know, beautifully pressed King G blue shorts and a bright yellow polo and I was the only one. So I stood out like an absolute beacon <laughs> with a Kiwi <laughs> accent, which wasn't the best start. Oh, no. <laughs> But one of the uh, one of the fortunate aspects was that I was the only one with a driver's license, right? Because you were fifteen and you'd yeah. already had it for a little and, while. And I can use that in Australia as part of the international driver's license. And so I was the only one who could drive, and that broke down a few barriers. And yeah, I had a really fantastic time. It was the first year twelve. There weren't too many of us that graduated to go to university. It's actually where I met my wife as well. Now she thought I was just an arrogant rugby player from New Zealand and wasn't really that interested. But we both went to the same school and both graduated and had a similar friendship group. But uh, some of the interesting aspects of that school was they thought it would be very funny to have this Kiwi play in the Aussie Rules footy team. And I'd never played Aussie Rules before. I'd seen it in New Zealand, the grand finals. And so my first my first game, I got sent off twice because apparently you're not allowed to pick up people and slam them on the ground in a tackle. I can imagine that. And holding the ball because I tried to run through people rather than around people. <laughs> so, so that bravado you had on the rugby field came out into the footy arena? Yeah, it was, but it was actually really entertaining uh, <laughs> and, and it was great fun. But I, I joined a rugby club here pretty much straight away. You know, I managed to get to Waikato Chiefs trials, but my delusions of grandeur didn't meet my ability. I was limited in, in what I could do, but I, I played rugby for Netherlands uh, pretty much straight away, and I remember playing at Perry Lakes in 38-degree heat, which was a, a shock to the system, and also played for Wanneroo, who were the local club as well. And we ended up being coached and played with his son, a guy called Jamie Joseph, who became an All Black. Right. Which was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, had some great fun times at the rugby club, and we always used to love playing the snobby clubs of associates you know we were from a working class suburb so we we used to right. love playing associates and university and and those type of clubs some great rivalries yeah there were great rivalries yeah oh look that's a great insight i suppose when you look at your schooling and you came out of it with options and that led you through to curtin university to do a bachelor of commerce one of the things that i mean given your trajectory through your career was that you chose to do a bachelor of commerce coming out of school was that primarily just to keep your options open or did you have a, a, a love of business that you wanted to get some grounding in? Look, I, I had a love of business. Uh, I did some work experience at a bank when I was in New Zealand and played golf with the regional bank manager and, and he was quite influential on me. Right. I um, met a very um, chap called Stuart and, and who I keep in contact today. So I always had a leaning towards business, but my world changed at the end of year 12, mum and dad. You know, they came over when interest rates were 17 and 18%. You imagine that in today's economy. Unbelievable. And, and it didn't really work out. So there was a, there was a lesson there, which I bring in, into my work life around due diligence. Probably didn't do as much due diligence um, as they should have. But they took a gamble and had a crack. Yes. But anyway, home called. And so mum and dad 
went back to New Zealand and I said, I'm not going. Right. And, and Bren's joke, that was my parents' way of getting rid of me and dropping me off in a different country and then um, scooting, yeah. scooting back. But the reality was that I'd started to make a life for myself, even though I was 17. I didn't have any money. I'd met my girlfriend, who's now my wife, yes. um, Lynette, and she was a significant influence on me and really backed me in where I probably what lacked a bit of confidence. Anyway, I made the decision that, no, I'm going to stay here in Australia, but I didn't have many options. So I went out and got my first job as a bank teller on NAB and Murray Street Mall. That would enable me to get a bit of furniture, some of it which I had to rent, got a, a little villa in Yokon, which I shared with a friend, and got started. But I knew I needed to get to university, but my only option was to go to university at night. And Curtin University was the university that provided that opportunity. And that is why you went to Curtin, in essence, because they gave you the opportunity to be able to work during the day and study at night. And, and study at night. And after about a year and a half, was sorry, it was about a year when I working at NAB, I started to go to university and about a year and a half, the bank manager said to me, why are you going to uni? You're having to leave 15 minutes early. You've got such a great career here at NAB. Sort of a light bulb moment that I probably needed to move on. And one of the best decisions I've ever made in my career. And I was given the opportunity to join Ferrier Hodson, which was the preeminent insolvency and reconstruction firm in Australia as a, as a trainee accountant. Yes. And what they did is they supported you going to university at night, but working as an accountant, and, and I wouldn't even call it an accounting role during the day. And if you know anything about the uh, late 80s, early 90s, it was a, they were pretty heady times. I was going to ask you about that, David. So you've effectively gone out, you've started your degree, you're working full time and you're studying. And then, well, what is at the time a, a leading national practice for insolvency and reconstruction give you this opportunity? Now, that period of time, as you've highlighted, is a all-time classic period of time when it comes to corporate identities. Yes. Okay. And I'm just curious. What experiences did you take away from working for what was a pretty prestigious firm, Ferrier Hodgson? Again, first of all, and this is credit to my wife, I had to take a significant pay cut from NAB. And when I didn't have a lot of money, but I had to take, it was probably about a 25% pay cut to join Ferrier's. Right. But I could see the long-term gain and, and Lynette certainly opened up my eyes to that. And yeah, it was amazing time. We were working on the bond scheme of arrangement. There was the Rothwell's task force. We had involvements at various stages on the Scase chase. We worked, there was Compass Airlines, Mark 1 and Mark 2. Gosh. Uh, that went bust. So what it really taught you about was about business and spotting crooks, yeah, because there are a lot of crooks, but also spotting issues, the importance of cash flow, the importance of sometimes sticking to your knitting, what you're good at, because there were some businesses that, tried to diversify, spent a lot of capital and ended up going bust. But there were also a lot of sad stories as well. People had bad luck and, you know, that played a little bit on me yes. with my background. But the training that you got and how you had to uh, communicate with people in very difficult times. You know, I remember standing in front of a, a workforce of probably about 60 or 70. I'm in my suit. I just look like this townie and I use it as fabricators and welders there and you're telling them about you know, how we're going to run this business going forward. 
So you, you learn to communicate and, and mm. communicate with different people yes. uh, from whether it's the CEO to someone on the shop front and you go in and run those businesses. Yeah, it was really interesting. There was no accounting, really. It was invest- a lot of investigative work, writing up reports, making recommendations to ASIC, trying to trace the money trail. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, the firm was very supportive, very collegiate, and it's where I've met my closest friends and people who have influenced um, my career. And when I sit back now and look where a lot of people have ended up out of that firm, they've had amazing careers and are running significant size businesses yes. across the spectrum. Some have stayed in insolvency, but others have branched out. And, you know, two of my closest friends who I always look to for advice, Darren Weaver and Kelvin Flynn, you know, they've had amazing careers, domestic and international. And, you know, the closest friends that I have today from, you know, the alumni is really strong. You were clearly quite good at what you were doing there because I noted that you quickly rose through the ranks and you ended up supervising chartered accountants when you're only really nearing graduation yourself. Yeah. Was that quite an experience in terms of, I suppose it comes back to what you were saying on the golf course, dealing with older people and and having relationships and building those. Yeah. The one thing about Ferrier Hodgson, they backed you in. Yes. Um, They really did back us all in. So I'm not unique in that regard. There were people who were far more talented than I were and really you know, I could look up to them and, and learn off them as well. So I certainly wasn't unique, but I'll, I'll be forever grateful for those experiences. But I, I do remember there was a, a time that really framed my mind that this is not where I wanted to head in my career. And I always had a plan that I'd want to be a CFO of a decent-sized company and then maybe if I was good enough to be a CEO. And there was a time where there was this toy store out at uh, Westfield, I think it was, and the family had had some bad luck and we had had to step in and basically close down this toy store. That's one of the sad stories. Yes. People have some really bad luck and you feel terrible for them. Anyway, and I'm, so I'm dealing with uh, the husband and wife and they've got a young kid and I'm, I think he was probably three and you know, we're going through this store doing a bit of a stock take you know, you're feeling a little bit bad for them. And he comes up and he offers me lollies from his lolly bag. And I think, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. But, you, know, the, you know, this is sort of just a, a light shed moment where I thought it's time now to, to make that change. Yes. You know, here I am, their mum and dad are going through a terrible time and their child's offering me a lolly out of their lolly bag. Yep. Yeah. So yep. that was um, a small moment, but something I always Significant, remember. Significant, yes. Yeah. So you moved from Ferry Hodgson. I just will point out at that point, you mentioned earlier you'd met your lovely wife, Lynette, when you were 17. You were married in 1997. So was that when you were with Ferry Hodgson or just after when you joined yeah, your next role with WMC Resources Western Mining? Yeah, just after. We were living together and we'd never really thought about marriage. And, you know, one day I had a thought bubble. Why don't I just do it? And again, um, not wanting to harp on, but didn't really have a lot of money behind me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I found, I think it was a police and nurses credit union that were coming out with cheap loans. So I borrowed some money and bought an engagement ring and uh, and surprised her um, at one of the places that we that we first met. We spent some time together at Sorrento Key. I am the lucky one out of this relationship. She's probably the unlucky one. <laughs> That's good to hear. So you've, you two have gone on. She's been in your corner through the whole journey. Yes. And I wanted to highlight that early because she's been a pillar for you through this whole entire 
career mm. that you've embarked on. You've now got two boys, Lachlan and Austin. Mm-hmm. They're going on with life. Yeah, the, to a certain extent, they're sort of following the pathway. They're, they're both moved out of home. Austin's 19 and studying at the University of Sydney. You know, so he's working and studying. He's got his dream job for university. He's working at a golf club. Oh, well uh, done. So, yeah, so he, he likes his golf as well. And I was only there last week and he was talking about how he's going to take me down, but um, I, I know the levers to pull and, and <laughs> he didn't even get close. So, yeah, he, he's you know, living with his girlfriend and another student couple and they're sort of all working and, and studying at the same time. So he's on his pathway. And Lachlan just recently, you know, a very hard worker. Again, something that Lynette and I have drilled into the boys about there's no substitute for hard work. And he's got himself a, a role in an investment bank and mergers and acquisitions, which is they're not easy to come by. But he's worked, you know, right throughout his university, worked full time at Silver Lake Resources as an engineer whilst completing his degree. Right. Again, very similar in lots of ways. Yes. Really good work ethic. And that just put him in great stead, used to working 12 to 14 hours days. In his holidays, he worked for a boutique M&A advisory here in Perth that was doing a lot of deals and, and they invested time in him and he put the time in and yeah, he, he's managed to get a gig and he's living in Sydney. So we both don't have children at home and yet the two boys are probably living 10 minutes away from each other in Sydney and they have a great relationship. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're very proud of them. Oh, great. Thanks for sharing that. Lynette did a great job of bringing them up. Well, I mean, I I suppose it does bring that question in of work-life balance Mm. in terms of, you know, you say Lynette did a good job. I'm sure you had a role to play in there, David, but, you know, you've you've forged a pretty impressive career through this period. I've been allowed to do that. We made some conscious decisions. Lynette had her own career and it was on a very successful trajectory. She made some sacrifices, you know, to invest time in in our kids. And it's paid off. But she has a very philanthropic view and, and does quite a bit of volunteering these days in areas that aren't necessarily trendy. And I, I've taken that on board as well. It's something you always want to give back. And what I've found is when, when you do give back, you actually receive more in return from the benefits that, that you feel personally from, yes. from your involvement. And you know, I spent 10 years on the Starlight Children's Foundation where it was all about raising, raising money um, and awareness. And it was just an amazing ride and we brought in some very generous partners, again, with the assistance of a network of people. Um, So networking and having relationships with people was really key to this. Mineral Resources came on board. But I also met a lot of people who were very generous but didn't want to make a lot of noise about it. And I tell you what, when you meet some of the parents and some of the children go through and how resilient they are, they put your problems into perspective. You, you don't really have problems. You deal with a child with cancer or some other rare condition as a parent, that's the definition of, of dealing with some stress. And it's, it's very humbling. My kids um, also got involved and got to see, and it's a good life lesson that sometimes you can, life can be a little bit too easy and there's a lot that happens that you're not aware of. Gosh, that's such a great insight. You were there for... Did you say nine years? Yeah, nine, around nine years. Yeah. And, and at that time, it, we probably jumped ahead a little bit, but at that time, it's time for a refresh. Yes. You don't want to hang around too long. And, and sometimes where your friend might pick up your mobile phone, they'll see your number and go, he's going to ask me for money again. He's going to ask me for something. Right. You want to make sure that you don't overdo that. 
and yeah, the opportunity came to join Curtin University. And so that's, for me, is the other philanthropic thing um, that I do because I'm so passionate about education. You know, education, the seven years at uni is tough as it was, you know, when your friends are out partying and you're studying accounting ethics. It was tough, but it just opened up so many doors. So I'm, I'm very passionate, but, you know, education is the key. With regards to that, you're chair of the audit committee, is it? The- yeah, the audit and risk and compliance committee. There's, there's a number of committees within universities. So I sit on the executive committee and the council. And, and look, we're there to make strategic decisions, give direction. And there's also that compliance aspect to universities. But wow, there's some amazing people. Um, in university and and some of the research that goes on, you know, Curtin's launched a satellite, you know, it's it's got joint venture with NASA. We have a number, you know, we have an amazing school of minds, you know, where I know a number of people who've participated in your podcast have come through that school of minds. Yes. It's an amazing institution with campuses internationally, right throughout the South Pacific Rim, Dubai, Mauritius, Singapore and other areas, an amazing amazing place and very well run and an amazing campus. If I've had a few friends who've gone out, they've been blown away by the campus. Gosh, that's fantastic. So I might just move back into your career. Sure. Mindful of time, I just your career just sort of seems to leapfrog from here. Well, from Ferry Hodgson, we moved to, your first move into the mining area was with Western Mining. Yes. And now Western Mining's often been described as a centre of excellence for what it's been able to provide many companies going forward in terms of its exploration efforts in particular. Yeah, it, it's some of the people, again, that you met. You know, I worked for Tony O'Neill. There was Andrew Mitchellmore, Mark Kutafani, Paul Chapman. And a lot of people have gone on to very successful careers and high-profile careers. It was a, it, almost a bit of an incubator. And you know, I was just a, I was an accountant in the, in the gold and then the nickel and gold area and then sort of looked after one of their publicly listed subsidiaries called Central Northern Gold, which had, I think it was one of the longest running continuous gold mines uh, yes. in Australia. So that was a great grounding and my first introduction to a board uh, as well with Northern because it was publicly listed. But with this view on Wanting to head towards CFO, I knew that I'd need to have some banking and some markets experience. So then, yeah, moved to ANZ Investment Bank, which had an investment bank back then. And, you know, I was quite happy there. There was a bit of deal flow. And then out of left field, I was approached for an investor relations role at Orbital Engine Corporation, which is, you know, complete left field from what I've been doing. And I decided to have a crack and take a risk. and. What attracted me to Orbital was post um, Ralph Sarich being right. involved. Was it was listed in New York and listed here in Australia. You know, had a billion dollar market cap and not much revenue, but such a high profile and, and cutting edge technology. Absolutely well known. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was a real introduction into international markets and meeting international investors. You know, into New York and also in Australia and dealing with analysts and all different other market issues. Unfortunately, it just didn't turn over enough revenue and couldn't really afford to keep this role because I had an office also in, in America that w- there was a person there employed. And so I was made redundant. I was on the scrap heap, which, you know, that's pretty humbling experience. And, you know, I had one child, Lockie, and, and Austin on the way. And it wasn't exactly part of the plan. No, it wasn't. No. And, you know, you've got to learn 
to deal with adversity. And you know, I think, how am I going to look after my family? But then very fortunately, I applied for a role at Brambles and was hired there as a general manager for finance in the industrial business. So that was mining, contracting, logistics, warehousing. It, it was a diverse group of businesses and had, a, had the biggest crane business in Australia, which we ended up divesting. So yeah, great experience, which has held me in good stead for my current role in understanding the, the mining contracting side. You were there for around six years with Brambles. I noted that as you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you had aspirations to become a CFO. Mm. And in this case, you became CFO of CleanAway, handpicked out of your experience with the Brambles Industrial Services. Yes. That was quite an interesting point of time because that's where CleanAway was sold to private equity, KRR, KKR, should I say, for well over a billion dollars. Mm. Well, that would have been an amazing insight. Yeah, it was. And look, I was lucky in lots of ways. I was approached as for CFO for a wine company, a very high profile wine company before I took this role. And my sense, there was something not quite right. And I ended up turning it down and that wine company went bust. But what came out of that was an offer from Brambles to take the family to Melbourne and to basically restructure CleanAway. But within a few weeks, it was clear that we were going to sell it. And if anyone knows anything about KKR, world's largest private equity, there was a movie made about them called Barbarians at the Gate and a book. And they did the biggest private equity deal of takeover in Nabisco. And their due diligence and their knowledge and their network was amazing. One of the Ks of KKR was followed around the world to see what deals he might be doing. So he would meet with Peter Costello and John Howard and then meet a bunch of rubbish people, which was clean away. And we lived through various elements of that movie and they cut a deal with Brambles and was and we then worked in KKR for a while, which was, again, uh, an amazing experience. But it was a great deal at the time, you know, over a billion dollars for clean away in the industrial business. Gosh. And that's still part of the KKR network? The industrial services is still part. Of, well, actually, no, they've now divested out of that. Clean away was sold within a year of they had a, a desperate party who missed out, who ended up offering a hell of a lot more money than what KKR right. paid. So it was a, quick, a very quick flip. So they snapped that up. Yep. Yeah. So if we fast track from there, you went through to a role when you came. So you're in Melbourne for that period, and then you came yeah. back to Perth. Yes. And and took up a temporary role as CFO for the Australian Railroad Group, which then led you into, I suppose, the first start in in terms of the mining centric companies yes. with Jindalby Metals. Yeah, look, that was my first public company yes. um, CFO gig and Garrett Dixon, who was the CEO, and George Jones was the chairman, um, gave me that opportunity. And, you know, I was, it shows you um, timing. And, you know, there was an options package associated with it and a month before I was about to join, all these options were in the money. I was thinking, oh, geez, how easy is this sort of gig? And then within a few months of joining, the GFC happened as well. <laughs> so uh, that value turned negative very quickly. Yeah, look, I was an afforded an amazing opportunity. It had a joint venture just commencing with a state-owned um, enterprise out of China. And my role was to uh, arrange project financing from Chinese banks, which would be the first to bed down the joint venture and negotiate multi-billion dollar offtake agreements. And I, re I remember after a couple of months uh, walking along the terrace, I rang up Lynette and I said, I'm out of my depth there. I have not done this before. I'm feeling exposed and you know 
she gave me a good talking to and essentially backed myself in to learn. And the chair who replaced George, Jeff Wedlock, who was a, ex- a senior executive out of BHP, spent a lot of time with me and he was a, a strong mentor. And so I spent many years going basically fly and fly out to China, negotiated a, a nearly $2 billion Australian facility, the first one ever negotiated by- I noted that, yeah, yes. Um, with a Chinese bank. Um, cut the offtake agreement, which was a multi-billion-dollar agreement, and but it was also a very sad time. And lots of ways we lost Jeff Wedlock. Garrett and I were flying to Canberra for a signing ceremony with John Howard and the Chinese Premier. So this was a big deal within China yes. um, for that to occur. And we were waiting in the Qantas Club, and we got the call that Jeff's plane was missing, and Jeff was chair of Sundance Resources. And I remember Garrett and I talking to each other. We were just saying, we hope he's just, it's just been hijacked or something like that, that there hasn't been a plane crash. And then obviously the news came through a few days later that that plane crashed and we lost Jeff and a, and a number of people that Garrett yes. was also close to. And yeah, I lost a mentor. You know, I remember Jeff's favourite wine was the Horton's Jack Man. So we always drink a, a Jack Man for, for Jeff. Really, really sad time. Very, very tragic yeah. event. That time at Jindalby was, I mean, you did, sorry, just to go back a step, you'd end up taking a role on with Sundance post that tr- yes. uh, that crash and agreed to help out in, in many ways. Yeah, so I got the opportunity to join Western Areas. And again, this just shows how small Perth is. The finance director for Western Areas was Craig Oliver. And Craig was also a director of Sundance and he was on that plane. So it was like six degrees of separation. And that's pretty challenging going into an organisation where someone's passed away in such tragic circumstances. But Western Areas, Julian, Dan, Joe and the board were very welcoming. But yeah, I was contacted by uh, George Jones who really led the charge to to look after Sundance if I'd come on to the board and help out given that I'd spent a lot of time dealing in China. And one of the great aspects of Western Areas, they would always allow me to have one external directorship, which was an investment in myself. Uh, and But the company also got some benefits from that as well. So yeah, I joined Sundance and we really tried hard to make the best of a bad situation. But I really did that for Jeff to uh, try and honour him because it's an amazing deposit. It's just in a difficult jurisdiction with yes. infrastructure challenges. So 2008, GFC came through. You're at Jindalby. You've managed to negotiate this first magnetite concentrate offtake agreement in Australia. Mm. Did that go through in the end? Everything went through? Yeah, look, it was always going to be slightly underfunded and probably purposefully so. And Jindalby was always in a weak position because it was um, had a small balance sheet and the, and the Chinese state-owned entity had a large balance sheet. But I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that it was funded and it, and it was built. I didn't see it commissioned because I took that opportunity at Western Areas. And one of the key reasons, besides it having fantastic minds, it meant that I'd also have a directorship. So at 37, I was actually a director of an ASIC. And this, is, this was the move across to Western Areas. Yeah, and this was the move yeah, to Western Areas. Yeah. And which, look, you spent nine years at Western Areas. Eight. Eight years, was it right? Mm. And fantastic. I mean, this was really a step in the direction of nickel as well and really gave you the ultimate insight into a company that was leading the leading the charge. Yeah, it was. It had a fantastic discovery with Spotted Quoll, a magnificent mine of Flying Fox. 
my role there was to fix up the balance sheet. We had a reasonable amount of convertible bond debt to change the institutional the register into more institutionally based. And one of the proudest things for the team at Western Area is that we were able to deliver guidance 28 out of 29 quarters. And that's pretty rare. So we had a real reputation for delivery. And yeah, I was involved in, again, off-take agreements for, for Nickel with BHP, Glencore, Trafigura, Singshan, which I spent you know, a, a year or two working out whether we wanted to work with them into various parts of China. Again, a lot of relationships built over that time. So it, it was an amazing experience, but I probably held on for probably a year or two too long. Right. But you know, everyone's an expert in hindsight. Yes. But the benefit was that it opened up ultimately the opportunity to join Mincor. If I could just ask a couple of questions about Western Areas. During that period, you acquired Cosmos. Yes, yes. For $24.5 million, which was previously sold to Extrata for $3.2 billion. Yes. Now, that would have been a significant deal, I would have thought, at the time, in terms of not just the acquisition of a great mine, but just the difference in price. Glencore, at the time, were, you know, had a few difficulties and were looking to exit some assets. And you know, we had the opportunity. So, yeah, I spent with um, the business development team because it's not one person that does these deals. But I was leading the corporate development team. Len um, was running the day-to-day. And we felt, well, this is at the bottom of the cycle. The nickel price is at the bottom of the cycle. Now's the time to buy an asset. And, yeah, for $24 million, we acquired a, a great asset, which is now the mainstay for Western Area's future going forward. It's a billion-dollar company. It's quite an interesting price difference, though. Yeah, it took Glencore a little bit of time to get over the fact that Extrata paid $3.2 billion and they were selling it for $24 million. I would have thought so. A little bit of time to digest. Yes. And I, the other one I just wanted to ask you about was the Kidman Resources stake. Yeah, look, we had some ground near Kidman, which they would require for infrastructure. And so negotiated a, an equity position in Kidman. We thought that there was, uh, they were going through a few problems um, with that tenure at the time, but we thought that would get resolved and it would be a, a good investment. And Peter Lester, who was the chairman and Martin, ended up asking me if I'd like to join the board of Kidman. Right. And I actually stayed on that board once I left Western Areas and I think it worked out financially very well for Western Areas when they divested. But it gave some amazing insights into lithium and lithium hydroxide. And as part of the board and management, we negotiated a, an offtake with Tesla. So it was the first offtake with Tesla. And one of the things that really solidified my view around nickel, what all the car manufacturers were concerned about at the time is where are they going to get nickel from for their batteries? Right. And that really hit home for me that there was going to be a change in the industry, not just stainless steel, but the battery market would take off. This negotiation of an offtake agreement with Tesla mm. sounds all very easy in words. Yeah. But to deal with Tesla, just give us a quick overview on how that actually works. Do, yeah. You've got a series of executive managers, I'm sure. Do you, do you go direct to Elon Musk? Uh, ultimately, he made the decision. Yes. So... Elon is surrounded by a bunch of very smart people. And so the Kidman management team with his advisors were negotiating with that team. But ultimately, as they said, if Elon doesn't tick it off, it's not going to happen. Right. 
And you would generally know within the first few minutes of meeting with Elon whether you're going, that deal was going to go through and uh, the team got the thumbs up. Yes. And is he very conscious on cost and price or given the amount of market cap his company was experiencing, it was less of an issue, just the supply was the main core? Uh, supply and being ex-China supply was a key for them. Right. But don't underestimate their um, commercial leverage as well because having Tesla as your beachhead offtake, they know that well, we should get a discount for that because that's going to help your business. Yes, okay. Was that offtake signed up and then the ultimately Kidman was acquired by West Farmers? Yes. And you were on the board at that point? Yes. Oversaw that transaction? Yeah, so again, it's not me who oversees it. No, there's no, a, no, it's there's, a, there's a team behind that. And ultimately, we made the call that Kidman didn't really have the balance sheet. It had a large joint venture partner called SQM, who is the largest, largest lithium producer in the world. And... What I've learned over time through the Jindalby is that a big balance sheet is always going to dominate a small balance sheet when you're building a project. You can have the best joint venture in the world, but ultimately balance sheets are going to have the say. And for us, uh, the there are a number of parties circling and uh, West Farmers had just had an unfortunate experience with Linus. Right. And we're, you know, we're looking into that battery metal space. So again, exceptionally well prepared. I think they've got a few ex-KKR people in that corporate development team. And they came up with a number which was in the interests of shareholders. And for probably two years post, post that transaction, it looked like the best deal in the world because the um, lithium market fell would have made it difficult for Kidman to survive. But now, because that asset was housed within West Farmers with a large balance sheet, they will now reap the rewards yes. of that. Fascinating. So then, ultimately, we brings us to now. And here you are as Managing Director of Mincor. Just going back, what attracted you to Mincor? You, you alluded to it earlier. Again, a little bit of a humbling experience in that when I was approached, I actually thought I knew everything about Mincor. And anyway, I was convinced to to get behind the veil. And what I realised is, you know, don't get carried away with your own bullshit. Sometimes, David, you don't know everything, right? And I could see we were on the verge of a pretty significant discovery with Cassini. There was an opportunity for a new offtake agreement with BHP to cut new commercial agreements, and a lot of what needed to be done suited my skill set. And so it was time to back yourself in. Yep. I was convinced about the nickel market. So that was a that was a tick. And Cambelda has such a rich history and there was very little money spent on Greenfields exploration, which shocked me. And so yeah, I you know, I was very lucky to also come with a board that are very supportive and really uh invested in in wanting to see Mincor grow. David, with your understanding of nickel and the Cambelda region. Can you just give our listeners a bit of an insight into what makes Cambalda so attractive? I know that originally Nickel was founded back in 1966, thereabouts, and Cambalda. They decided it was a nice name to call the town at the time. There's so much history. But when you look at the Cambalda as a region, you've got two domes, I understand. Yep. Just give us a little bit more of an insight and where Mincor sits with regards to that. So our... Our tenement holdings are around the northern Cambelda Dome. Yes. And that's where the most nickel has been discovered, and it's almost on a six-kilometre belt where you had the long complex Otter mine that ended up producing 320,000 tonnes of nickel. And that six-kilometre complex is a million tonnes of high-grade nickel that has come out. And then there's the Widgimulta Dome as well. 
And that's where we discovered Cassini. Right. And what it showed is you know, such for such a prolific nickel belt, such l- little amount of money had been spent on Greenfields exploration, I think over 15 years, about $15 million across all the groups. And if you put money into Greenfields, you are likely to discover. And we had some particular in-house intelligence around uh, building up a basalt model. And this was how we would define where a potential Kamatiite lava channel where you host um, nickel sulfides. And uh, we discovered Cassini. And to the credit of the team, this is not me discovering Cassini. This is the exploration team. Yes. They ended up winning AMEC Prospector of the Year Award, which is just a great recognition from your reward peers. for it yeah yeah it's it's like winning the coaches award in afl or you know it's the club person award it was recognition from your peers that this is a significant discovery so really proud of the team who did that and we were able then to also purchase the long operation of igo and consolidate that northern Cambelta home for the first time since western mining owned it yes and we had a view there's a space in between where these mines are of about 1.2 kilometres, which I nicknamed the Golden Mile almost by accident because I was at Diggers and, you know, listening to Rowley and Bill talk about the super hit and the Golden Mile and everything, gold that glitters, and I was getting a bit annoyed as a nickel person. So I thought, <laughs> right, I'm going to call this the Golden Mile of nickel, even though it's not technically a mile. And we had a view that these channels connected. We recently put out some announcements. We showed some high-grade massive sulphide intersections. We can see a shape now emerging, and we believe there's the potential to host a significant ore body within that dome. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. Very exciting. And, and thus, you've seen over the time since you joined in 2019, the market cap of the company has grown significantly over that time. Yep. That's been a factor of... Clearly what you're doing as a business, the nickel price has also moved and created a bit more profit for the business. Yeah, look, it's certainly higher than our study. But when I look back at the team that's been built here, we essentially started with 15 people. And from the time we put out our study, we've known nothing but COVID and labour shortages. And we've had to fund this business mainly through equity, also through debt where banks when COVID hit, we're you know, running around worried about their businesses. They can't do site visits. Yes. We have to hire people. We have to get long lead items of mainly mining equipment. But the board, to their credit, backed us in and we made early decisions to commit and to recruit people before kicking off. So we had people ready to go when we were started. And one of the great things about MinCore is that every employee is a shareholder and a shareholder from day one. And we're all in it together. So we all ride the highs and lows together. And it, you know, for our last sustainability report that we put out, we had 100% retention rate. So people stay. What I was really surprised about, there was a lot of love for Minkle previously as well. A very strong alumni of people who really want to see the company do well. And you know, I remember being just stopped uh, at the servo in Cambowder and the person saw my Minkle uh, and he was real salt of the earth and was just so happy that Minkor was starting up again. You know, it was just a great walk, walking off the street. It wasn't someone in a fancy office in Sydney. It was just someone local who was just absolutely stoked that you were starting up in Cambelda. You must get that a little bit, I'd say, given the history of Minkor. Did you end up, with regards to the gold part of Mincor, have you moved into gold further or have you starting to wind that down? Or Yeah, we wound it down when I commenced. Mincor did some gold mining to keep 
yes. the doors open. Yes. But I think you, you'll confuse your shareholder base if they don't know what you stand for. And, yeah. and, we, and our goal was always to get back into nickel mining. And, but we still hold those gold assets. Um, we've had plenty of offers to sell them. Yes. Um, but it's something that we will turn our attention to. Because it, I remember one of the holes at Cassini, we ended up hitting like 2,300 grams per tonne. So we know there's gold out there. Unfortunately, we put a drill hole nearby and it, it didn't intersect again. So you don't make too much noise about those sort of intersections. But just going back to that history comment, you know, I think one of the proudest times for, for Mincor was recently when we opened up Cassini. It was sad in that um, Dr. Roy Whittle passed away. Yes. And Dr. Whittle had a connection, obviously, with Nickel in, in Cambauda. He also had some strong connections um, through the Western Mining Alumni, which uh, a number of us were part of, and also some, some of one of his key lieutenants worked at Mincor. And so after giving the family the respect of some time, we approached um, the family and, and wanted to name the, the decline, the Woodall decline. And we were exceptionally supported by Barbara and um, all of her children. And unfortunately, they couldn't travel because of COVID. But being able to name that um, the Woodall decline with a big ceremony was, was, yeah, was really special. Massive. Yeah, really special. Yeah. If you look at Mincor now, where do you see yourself going forward in terms of, you know, the current pricing? Mm-hmm. I, I can just go sideways a little bit. The pricing on the London Metals Exchange recently, mm. where that happened and, and they had to close. How did that make you feel when that happened? Yeah, nickel was, it's a very small market and it actually happened at, when I was at the Euros Rotness Conference. So there's a, <laughs> there's, a free, there's a free plug for Euros. I was there early in Fremantle, about to catch the, the boat across. I think we were third or fourth presentation up on the first morning. And the nickel price had gone up 68% yes. overnight. And I had all the, um, these investors and uh, various euros brokers come up to me. Oh, David, you must be really happy with that. And, you know, wow, your share price is going to go gangbusters. Well, guess what? Our share price went down by 8%. Now, you sort of think, I, I probably would have, you know, put a reasonable size bet that our share price would go up. But when you take some time to reflect, the market doesn't like disruption through non-fundamental events. Right. And, you know, the price then went up to another 100% again overnight, and that's when the LME closed it down, cancelled yes. trades, um, and have now put some controls back in place. But before that, the nickel price was already trending up anyway. You know, the last thing you'll ever want to do as a person is – take the benefits of, you know, the tragic circumstances that are happening across our globe. That is, yep. you know, that, Absolutely. that, again, that is the definition of stress. There's no stress in our lives here in Western Australia when you see what those people have to go through. But even before that, you know, the electric vehicle actuals were well ahead of forecasts and nickel was a key component. So the nickel price was up on, a, on an upward trajectory. Yes. And it would appear, if you look at the data with regards to electrical vehicles, nickel is very well placed Yes. going forward. Do you think globally there will be enough supply to meet the demand? And that's the question. Yeah, without getting too much into the nickel market because it's quite complex, the nickel price is going to be, needs to be high in my view to incentivise projects to start because like all mines, there's lower grades coming through. Yes. It's hard to find those high-grade ore bodies like we've got at Mincor. Yes. So it's very rare. And the, don't underestimate the ESG aspect of this as well. ESG is very important uh, to investors and the study that we've, the, sorry, the sustainability report we've shown will be the cleanest nickel 
producer in the world under scope one, scope two emissions. That's particularly important. So I, I call Cambauta sort of child-friendly, clean, green, nickel, and ultimately our product will go into Teslas and Toyotas. Fascinating. And that's only going to, that's the start, Tesla and Toyota. I mean, oh, there's, there's it's, a, it's just graduating across all vehicle manufacturers. BMW, Daimler Chrysler, they're all building production facilities for electric vehicles. And I've seen this through Orbital. Orbital never nearly got forward to change their entire production chain to two-stroke engines, which was part of that orbital technology. But they'd invested so much in four-stroke, they just couldn't make that change. And this is the same now with electric vehicles. They've invested in the infrastructure for nickel-rich batteries. So the next 10 years is going to be a very exciting period. Extremely exciting. And we just appear to be starting to see that coming through in the battery metal complex. What do you think about the lithiums, the cobalts, the nickels? Because nickel is the main driver within a battery for the longer life. Uh, for, for, for On the cathode side, yes. um, it's, a, it's a nickel, cobalt, manganese, but the nickel content's getting higher and that basically helps uh, longevity in terms of your, you can travel 600 kilometres less nickel, you might only get a few hundred kilometres. Yes. Um, but you've got to manage the heat in the battery. Lithium goes on the anode side with graphite um, for the battery. So they're all important metals. Western Australia has a significant opportunity down in Quinana. We're producing nickel sulfate that goes into batteries. We're producing lithium hydroxide. West Farmers have a significant chemicals business down there. We, we've got a lot of things that we can do to value add. We might not produce the battery here, but we can do a lot of the precursor work. Yes. It sounds like you're very excited about the future with Mincor, David. Yeah, look, it's been an amazing journey. I have to thank the team that we've got. Everyone in the team at Mincor work hard. You know, every person works long hours. They give up time with their family. And you've always got to remember that. And you've got to celebrate, you know, your successes along the way. But don't get too carried away with yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously as well. You know, there I am often stirred up internally within the Mincor team about various aspects of my life. So I get it at home and then I get it at work. <laughs> and it helps having a cohesive team, but also having everyone as owner and knowing that we're all linked together. It's not just one person who's going to do well. We all do well or we, we all don't do well. Yeah, you're all rowing the boat together. Correct. That's a really good segue into just a few general questions around what's going on and particularly around the WA economy. You alluded to it earlier with regards to Quinana, but how do you feel like we're going at the moment as a WA offering to the world or with regards to labour shortages or things like that? How do you see it playing out? Look, I've never worked in a time where labour has been so short and it has been a challenge every day. Building a project during this time has been difficult and from a Mincor perspective, here I'm turning your question into a Mincor, Mincor answer. I, I noted that. Yeah, no, it's very good. Um, and I got that with my one bit of media training is to turn it around. But we, we've been able to deliver the project pretty much on time and, and on budget. But I, it has been hard work and you need the support of your contractors. But the people also coming in are a lot more green. And I get to see this also through, I'm fortunate to sit on the board of Remelius Resources, which has been yes. growing a lot. And we have a number of mining contractors engage them and we're all suffering the same labour shortages and people wanting more money. Short supply, costs go up. We've got to be mindful of that. One of the things I'm actually 
concerned about but also see that there's a big opportunity is around educating year eights and year nines about the opportunities within mining. Western Australia, we're blessed with commodities. You know, the government is blessed with the riches from the entrepreneurship and then, you know, what we owe the community for, for digging those commodities out. So there's, we're very well placed. Uh, commodity prices, I think, are in for a sustained, strong cycle. But we need to attract people into our industry. And that's where I get back to this education and winning the hearts and minds of, you know, kids who are in year eight because unfortunately sometimes mining gets tarnished with, with a negative brush, yes. which is unfair uh, in my view. There are so many opportunities from artificial intelligence to uh, remote controls to environmental, be part of the solution and making things cleaner and greener. Some of the drone technology and um, IT that's now involved moving to an electrified underground fleet. There are so many opportunities for people of all disciplines and political leanings because we can't have a, a cleaner future without having mining as part of that solution. Uh, wind power, well, that comes from steel, yes. comes from nickel. Electric vehicles comes from rare earths, lithium and, and nickel. So we have to mine to be able to produce that, that greener future. Gosh, that's such a great insight, David. With regards to the other metal, gold, how do you see that faring in the longer term? So if I switch my hat to Remelius yeah. then for, for, for a minute. Gold, a, well, you yeah. mentioned Remelius yeah, earlier. Yeah. I thought, oh, well, I better ask about the gold price. Yeah, well, what a, what a, <laughs> what a great company. Let, let me put in a plug for Remelius. It's uh, <laughs> it run exceptionally well. Is uh, We've done a lot of deals at Remelius to build that company and work the assets really hard. And I, and I think Mark Zeppner and the team are really starting to get that recognition. Look, gold, I think, is is going to be fairly strong for a, a decent period of time. With global turmoil, and I don't think we've lived in a world where there isn't turmoil at some point in time, and the rising costs, uh, gold can't go down too low before it then becomes uneconomic. And it still remains a store of value. Is there a threat from crypto and, and other forms of currency, which I really don't understand? I know my kids understand it, but yes. I just don't get it as as well as I should. Well, I'm glad you've answered that because I was going to ask you, what's your view on Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm, I'm just an old man. Okay, <laughs> so I'm, at 49, I'm just I'm just an old man or a boomer, as my two boys refer me to. So I I, I think there's a strong future for gold. Is the short answer? Yes. Okay, David. I think there's a few things that we can take out of that. You've had an absolutely a wonderful career, and you've started out with the Bachelor of Commerce, but you've moulded your career through a variety of businesses that has enabled you to get to your what you wanted to achieve, which was first of all to be CFO of listed company. Now here you are running such a fantastic company with Mincor. And the opportunities ahead are clearly very exciting. And it's it's just great to hear what you've been able to show us and also the listeners what what it's taken to get there, but what is really going on in a company like Mincor. Yeah, look, it's you don't do this without a lot of support from a from from a lot of people. It's not in individual, and I tend to mark myself fairly hard. And I don't know whether that's a defensive mechanism not to get too carried away yourself. I I, I think you've got to surround yourself with some friends that give you honest, hard, harsh feedback. Yes, uh, to 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 keep you grounded, but also really good feedback. I think also you've got to not be afraid to uh, um, have people in your team that 
don't necessarily reflect who you are, who are different. Because if you don't have different people, you don't get different perspectives. And if you all think the same, well, it's not going to end up end up well. And it's something I've I've learned early on. And the importance of relationships can never be underestimated. The unfortunate thing with Zoom is that we've had through COVID, you don't have that personal interaction. And I just did my first road show to Sydney and Melbourne last week and geez, it was refreshing actually yes. seeing people, getting the cues from what you say and the questions you ask and body language. Yeah, it it just a significant difference. But a couple other things I take, you've got, got to have some humour in your life. You know, and with that celebrating difference, don't suffer from envy or that fear of missing out. I don't know. It maybe maybe it was uh, that sort of working class background that sort of formed those those views. But yeah, I'm I'm very lucky as well. You know, I'm very lucky to be supported by a, a, a magnificent family and a great friendship group. David, thanks a lot for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. We really enjoyed it and um, really appreciate it. Yep. So thank you. No, thank you for the opportunity. Good on you. Cheers. See you, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Harleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.